0: I'm Jonathan. Good morning. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Bible Church, and I uh, have the privilege of preaching God's word uh, to you this morning. I know we just prayed, but uh, I'm going to pray real quickly one more time as we begin. Uh, Father, you are gracious and you are merciful, and I'm humbled f- before you. I pray that you would have your way. I pray that you'd forgive the sins of this math teacher, for they are many. Please bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, amen. When I was a kid, I had a friend who lived down the street from me. His name was Chris Brown, and we caused all sorts of mischief. On one particular uh, day, which I'm going to tell you about, because I'm not going to tell you all the stories that we did, it's probably going to give my kids too many good, I mean bad ideas. Uh, but on one particular day, we were going to go to putt-putt golf and games, a place where you could play miniature golf and play arcade games, you know, back in the day. It was the 90s. And I can't believe I'm telling you this, but uh, we were going to go, and I can't believe that my mom allowed this to happen. She was going to drop me off with a group of friends, like no adults. And so I was, I'm going to invite my friend Chris, we'll go, we'll have a good time. So I called him, and he has the phone, and I'm like, hey, let's, we're going go to we're gonna go to a putt-putt, and don't tell your mom that it's just going to be us, because, you know, otherwise, she might not say that we can go. Now, Chris's mom, Ms. Brown, was my fifth grade teacher. And as many of you kids know, you don't want to cross your fifth grade teacher and I didn't want to either. If any of you are over the age of 35 and you know where the story is going, please don't spoil it for those who are younger. Of course we were on a landline and of course Mrs. Brown was listening to every word that I was saying on the other end of the phone line in another room apparently. So I was totally busted. I had tried to be dishonest, and I was caught. And Miss Brown gave me a come to Jesus moment. Now I tell you guys the story, and I've told my kids the story before too. Not because that I want you know I don't uh, want them to do anything like this. Of course I don't. And and not only because it's kind of funny, a little chuckle here and there, <clears throat> but also because I want to teach my kids the importance of honesty. And how dishonesty can be a type of captivity. Sin is not just bad behavior. Because if it were, then good behavior could fix it. Now, sin touches every part of us. It goes deeper than just our behavior. Sin touches our words. Sin goes very deep and touches our motives. Sin is itself a captivity From which we must be freed. Our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians, it comes from a letter that Paul wrote, and it's not known for being a really encouraging letter. By the time we get to chapter 10, the reader gets this impression that these people were messed up. I mean, big time. Uh, The church in Corinth was struggling with division and multiplication. Sorry, I am a mathematician. Had to get a math dad joke in there. Uh, They were struggling with divisions, okay, following Apollos, following Paul, following Peter. They were arrogant. They were idolatrous. Now, for a moment, can we think of a people or a group that struggles with idolatry, with arrogance, with divisions? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know where I'm going. Um, Americans are not the first of such people, and neither were the Corinthians who Paul's writing to. Paul reaches back over a thousand years from his day, which is like 3,000 years ago from us. And it turns out the ancient Israelites were arrogant and divisive and idolatrous. And First Corinthians tells us a few summary stories or examples for us that we can learn from, starting the. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were. So hold on. Before we continue, the fathers of ancient Israel were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and so on. I thought Paul was writing to Gentile Corinthians. So, you know, the Gentiles were not Hebrew. Moses wasn't their father, was he? At least not according to Ancestry.com. But the good news of Jesus, the gospel, announces many things. And one of the things that it announces is that the work of Jesus on the cross, because of his work, Gentiles are welcomed into the family. Uh, Turn with me to Ephesians 2. If you're looking at the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 977. And while you turn to Ephesians 2, let me read another helpful verse. You, Gentile, Roman, Christians although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That was from Romans 11, and it's a very interesting object lesson that Paul uses, the natural olive tree and the wild olive tree, bringing them together for the same nourishing root. In Ephesians 2, we see similar object lessons. Paul uses the metaphor of citizenship and family, Let's start in verse 19 of Ephesians 2. He says, So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So whether you were Jewish or Gentile, it makes no difference in Christ Because of the gospel, we are one. Now, keep your thumb in Ephesians 2, or maybe put your bulletin in it. We're going to come back to it. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers. So when he says this, he's implicitly saying what he has explicitly said in these other passages, Ephesians 2 and Romans 11, that Gentiles are welcomed into the family. So pay attention. Corinthian believers, pay attention American believers. You can learn from your spiritual ancestors here. And then Paul reminds them of a number of what I would say are advantages and privileges that Israel had. We're going to look at several of them. Now some of the different commentators that I read through numbered them in different ways and some had four, some had five. I've got three, like any good preacher is going to have, right? So, the first advantage that the Israelites had was they had supernatural guidance. And I'm going to group A and B together here. Uh, So, secondly, they had miraculous deliverance. The scripture says, "Our, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Israelites were slaves of Egypt for 400 years, four centuries of slavery. Now, don't you think at that time, the Egyptians had figured out how to keep Israel in their place, to to keep them held down, to keep them from uprisings? Now, perhaps there were uprisings, perhaps there were rebellions, but to no avail, because there was no human effort that was going to free them from the Egyptians, they really needed a miracle. And the Lord provided not just one, but several. Now, many of you know this story. I'll try to summarize it. God chose Moses to go and to deliver the people of Israel, and he confronted Pharaoh. He didn't confront him with his strength. He didn't confront him with his wits or with his skillful speech. He confronted Pharaoh by speaking the word of God, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, who's this God? Who is Yahweh? I don't know him. And Moses said, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's made all things. He's the ancient of days. He's the sovereign one. But Pharaoh wouldn't budge. And there were plagues. You get all the way to the 10th plague and the angel of death was going to come upon the land of Egypt. And the Israelites were warned, and they then would kill a lamb, and they would spread the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And harm was not going to come upon them because of the doorposts had the blood of the lamb covered. But death came to the firstborn of any house that was not covered and so we see the first Passover, right? Now, that plague was, was uh, horrible. The cry in Egypt was great. There was death. There was sadness. But that was a miracle, and the Israelites began to then pack their things, and so began the Exodus. It was truly a miraculous deliverance, and that's not where it ended. Then they get out to the Red Sea, right? Some of you know this story. And then the, Egypt, the Egyptian army was pursuing the Israelites because Pharaoh had changed his mind again and was going to chase them down and kill them. And then God did another miracle. He parted the Red Sea and Moses led them through the sea on dry ground, God's word says. Then their journey to the promised land had, of course, several twists and turns. There, were, there was miracle after miracle And this is going to bring us to our third advantage that Paul mentions, and that is spiritual drink and spiritual food, or spiritual bread and spiritual drink. Paul says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So what's going on here? In Exodus 16, Israel was given manna, which literally means What is it? It would be some sort of flaky thing on the ground, I imagine, and I knew they could collect it. They could grind it up. They could make cakes out of it. Somehow it molded after 24 hours, except on Fridays and Saturdays when they'd have to collect twice as much. It was miraculous. And then in the next chapter, we can read about Moses striking the rock, which provided water to drink Now, these are physical things. These are physical provisions. So why does Paul use the language spiritual food and spiritual drink? I'm going to get into that. But I want to point out, this is the point in 1 Corinthians where Paul's tone changes. It's in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's the name of this sermon, as examples for us. God is sovereign over all things. His purposes go very deep. He is thorough. Oftentimes, his purposes go beyond what we can even comprehend. But one of the purposes of these adventures that the Israelites went through in Exodus is as examples for us and certainly his purposes go beyond that but there are some really interesting connections that i want to talk about between the gentile church and the israelite people and this is where we come in so look back at your notes for a second the first and the second advantages we saw that they were given guidance they were given deliverance i want to hang out here for a few minutes Christians, we have been delivered from slavery. Slavery to sin. You still have your thumb in Ephesians 2? Let's flip back there. We read earlier in verse 19, we're going to back up a little bit. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated From the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world a totally desperate situation verse 13 but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, it says. He has miraculously delivered you, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, this dividing wall that Ephesians talks about makes me think about a few things, a few things that are relevant to our culture. There are many in our American culture that seem to be trying to draw lines between peoples based on the color of their skin you are in this category and you are in that category you are oppressed you are the oppressor you can speak to this issue and you can't speak to this issue now at the heart of this is a worldview and we would stand against it I am all in favor of listening to each other so let's be charitable Christians, let's be gracious to each other and let's listen. One category may even grant them certain insights about life where they learn some things and we could benefit, but the category based on your skin color doesn't give you authority because authority comes from God's word, ultimately. So let's believe this. Now, even some well-meaning brothers and sisters are saying that we should work towards reconciliation And I'm like, yes, let's do that. Reconciliation is a good thing. Be careful, church, who you listen to. God's word says that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Past tense. It's been broken down in Christ. We are reconciled. We are in Christ. Biblically, there are two groups of people. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And they're just because of some category the world wants to put us in, uh, we can trust God's word. Now, this is possible because we have been delivered in Christ miraculously. We've been given the Holy Spirit who guides us, and He is the promised seal that guarantees our inheritance. So, it's not just the Israelites that we see these advantages. We we can see them in us, okay? Have we been miraculously delivered? Check. Are we given supernatural guidance? Yes. We have the Holy Spirit who we can trust and who leads us and convicts us. And do we have spiritual food and drink? Well, yes. In chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, we're not going to get there today, but Brent reads this every time we have the Lord's Supper. He talks about, Paul gives instructions for the Lord's Supper. We take communion together, and the point is we are identifying in Christ. We are unified in Him, and we get to celebrate that. And so that's what I would say is the spiritual food and the drink that Paul's referring to. So we too have these advantages. Now surely, If we have these advantages and privileges to get us started out on the right path, we're going to be able to walk the straight and narrow, right? I mean, didn't the Israelites do that? They set them up, and did they walk the straight and narrow? Of course not. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Exodus 32. It's on page 72 of the Bible in front of you. At this point in the story, this is after the Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai, and the people are simply waiting. These are the same people who witnessed the ten plagues. They literally walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had several advantages, yet as we are turning to Exodus 32, we can see that Paul doesn't have great things to say about them. It says, uh, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in the sexual immorality as some of them did. So yes, advantages, but now we see our first failure of the Israelite people, and it's idolatry, idolatry. Exodus 32 begins, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it With a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now skip a few lines down. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Paul says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality. If we were to read on in Exodus 32, we would see that thousands of people died by the sword at the word of God. Thousands. You see, idolatry is not a joke. Sexual immorality is not just, hmm, I better not, okay, it's a big deal. Idolatry is an offense to a holy God. And by the way, it's devastating for humans. How quickly did the Israelites forget their rescue? And how quickly do we, believers, forget our rescue in Christ? Do you find yourself bowing the knee to man's approval? Do you find yourself bowing the knee to the idol of safety? You know, you worrying about stuff that we can't control. You know, you may not be building a golden calf in your garage. Or I, I hope not. But there are tons of 21st century idols that we bow the knee to, and we say, "You have saved us." Is it money? Is it consumerism? Do you find yourself bowing the knee to? Try to get that next great material possession. We ought to be good stewards of God's money, be good stewards of the materials he's granted us with, but how quickly do we turn something that is good into something that is ultimate? You know, it's interesting how they acquired that gold. So Aaron got all this gold, right, from the people. In Exodus 12, God's word tells us where the gold came from. It says in verse 35, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So hang on. Are you telling me, That the Israelites used the gifts received because of God's favor to construct an idol that they would then bow down and worship? Yes. That's what happened. And I'm telling you that we do the same thing. We think things like, well, you know, my money has saved me from poverty and difficulty. You know, I confess often that I've thought, if only I had a little bit more money and then I'd be safe from fill in the blank. Now, and in doing so, I feel like I've come embarrassingly close to the Egyptians. So what's an idol in your life that God has brought to your mind just now? Maybe write it down on your bulletin or on your notes. The second failure that Paul mentions uh, is a reference to Numbers 21. And that second failure is this rebelling The people were rebelling against the plan of God. In Numbers 21, I won't read all of it here, but this is when the people were so angry with God's plan for them that they said, Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt so that we can die in the wilderness? And in doing so, the Lord sent fiery serpents, venomous snakes, some of our worst nightmares, right? (laughs) And then it actually killed several uh, Israelites. It was, again, a devastating thing. And the people pleaded, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Moses, pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents. And the Lord uh, didn't tell Moses to take away the serpents. There was no, you know... Humane relocation of the animals, as shown on Discover Channel. The Lord told Moses, hey, go make a serpent, put it on a pole, and raise it up high. And if anybody who is bitten looks upon the serpent, they will live. Which is so interesting to me, because the Lord didn't just remove the difficulty. He made a way through the difficulty, they didn't, he didn't answer their prayer in the way they asked. Take away the serpents. I mean, the implication is people still got bit. But then they would look, and they would, re, they would live. They would look at the serpent on the pole and would live. Numbers 21, it's a fascinating story. Jesus even quotes it later, by the way. He's talking to Nicodemus and says, As Moses lifted up the serpent to the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him... They have eternal life. Uh, this moves us to the third failure that Paul points out in verse 10, which says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Man, grumbling <clears throat> about their current circumstances. This hits home for me because I definitely have a tendency to grumble about things. Now, what Paul's referring to isn't super clear. It's either, some of the biblical commentators I read, it's either Numbers 14 or 16. And what does he mean by the destroyer? So I don't have a definitive answer there. I'm not really sure. But the principle in either case is this, that the people complained against Moses. They didn't trust the Lord's ways. And we can look at that because it's obvious to 21st century Bible readers to see the absurdity in ancient Israelites when they repeatedly begged why can't we go back to Egypt you know to to the slavery you want to go back to that are you kidding me it sounds ridiculous that's obvious to us but it says these were written down as examples for us because at the end of the day we're not that different the scripture says therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall And so now I'm going to move us towards how we ought to respond. And the first way is with humility. Humility. Verse 12. Take heed lest he fall. No one wants to be a hypocrite. I have all people know this. When I was 18, I worked so hard not to be a hypocrite. Whatever it was going to take, I could do it. I was going to live this life right. I had the advantages, Christian upbringing. Okay. Saved when I was six, I'd led Bible studies in high school, I had been on mission trips, I had even been mocked for my faith once or twice. Uh, but what ended up happening was I began to took my eye, take my eyes off of Christ. And we ought to fix our eyes upon Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But when we take our eyes off of him and place them on ourselves, it's a dangerous place to be. For my story, I began to harbor secret sins. And I began to rationalize it. And guess what? I became a hypocrite. Well, newsflash, I was already a hypocrite at the time. But then I became aware of it. Humility. It's always when I'm flying high, I trip on something low. Says the lyrics from an old song. Second response I would encourage us to... To live out is endurance endurance so yes take heed lest you fall but in verse 13 it says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it god is faithful you know, we have been raised from the dead spiritually. We were pulled from the coffin of our sin. God's not the one who says, hey, hey, see that, see that coffin over there? You, you, you want to go, go check that out? You want to go stand by it? Maybe you just want to go touch it for a second? No, we are the ones that have been raised, and we look at the coffin, and we're like, hey, maybe I want to go stand by that. Maybe I'll just, you know, uh, uh, mom and dad, how close can I get before it's like a sin? You know, can I? Well, When you put it in its proper language, that sounds silly because sin is the coffin. And so we shouldn't be asking, how close can I get to that, right? Paul tells us to flee from idolatry. You know, maybe in the midst of our temptation, we see that coffin and we are we are certainly tempted maybe a name comes to mind oh man i should i should text so and so who could who could really help me out someone to remind me of my identity someone to pat me on the shoulder and say hey bro that's a coffin okay that's not healthy for you okay and so maybe in those midst of temptation the lord opens a door so we see that and then we see a door we're like oh well that's That's an open door. You see, God is faithful. He provides ways out for us. The problem is we tend to ignore them, and that leads to some dangerous things. So our response is humility, endurance, and then in verse 14, flee from idolatry. As we saw earlier, idolatry is not a joke. It's not something we want to play around with. It's not something you can just tame. Okay? You, can, you can no more likely tame your sin problem than you can tame an alligator. It must be put to death, and there's only one who's worthy to do so. This brings us to our next steps this morning. And the first one is this. There is freedom in confession and repentance, something my kids have heard me say a number of times. There is freedom in confession. Don't hide. Don't hide it. That's where the enemy wants you, right? He wants you in the darkness. He wants you to think, you can tame that alligator. Go for it, you know. Yeah, he just nipped at you. Tame that alligator. Go ahead. Those are not healthy things. Find a trusted brother or sister in Christ and confess what the Lord has made clear to you as idolatry and Repent. It might feel scary to confess a deep sin struggle. It's probably scary because you may be bowing the knee to man's approval. Um, I can't tell them that, you know, what will they think? Earlier I talked a little bit about reconciliation. Maybe you ought to reconcile with a brother or sister. Maybe you've heard me talk about the slavery of sin and the, the freedom we have in Christ And that interests you, and you would admit that you are separated from Christ, having no hope without God. And I would urge you to repent. I would urge you to believe in Christ. Uh, There will be some pastors and leaders up front after the service, so come and talk to us about it, and we'll try to answer your questions, and we'll pray with you. Uh, The second next step is this, what are some ways the Lord provides a way out when you're being tempted? Maybe you're a young man and you're tempted to look at pornography, and a thought comes to mind, hey, text your friend so-and-so, and and there would be wisdom in that. You know, hey, I know what my triggers are. uh, When I'm all by myself, maybe you ought to text a friend say, hey, would you call me on Saturday? I'm going to be on a business trip. Would you also call me on Sunday just check with me, see how I'm doing? There's wisdom in that. Maybe you're tempted to bow the knee to the idol of laziness or convenience. I don't need to pick on college students or anything, but because it's adults too, frankly, right? I found myself spending, you know, six hours a day on a screen is probably too much, right? That's a wake-up call. Our phones will tell us how much time we've spent on these apps now, which can be very helpful and convicting. But we ought to flee from idolatry. Grace Bible Church, God is faithful. He desires the very best for you. And I want to leave you with this. Sin is not freedom, and God's ways are not captivity. There's a story that maybe you've heard me tell before where a professor is teaching a seminary class, and he is telling his students all about the incredible, gracious God. You know, Jesus forgives your past sins. He forgives the sins you've just committed last night. He forgives your future sins that you will commit later today. He forgives the sins that you'll commit next year and 10 years from now, wipes them clean. 100% 100% separates from the east from the west because he is gracious. No matter what you've done, you can't out God's grace. The professor was going on and on and on. And the student says, Professor, it sounds like what you're saying is that once I have believed in Christ and been saved, then I can do whatever I want. To which the professor says, Yes, now that you've been set free from the power of death and sin, what do you want to do? Sin is not freedom, and God's ways are not captivity. Grace and peace.